Time traveling friends, welcome back to the Tudor Travel Show, and it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide, here. Now, in a moment, I will introduce today's guest, but before I do so, I do have a mini announcement. I'm very, very excited to say that having run the Tudor Travel Show now for nearly two years, oh my goodness, where has the time gone? I have decided as of this month, November, to change things around a little bit. Rather than sharing just one episode a month, from November, I'm going to be publishing episodes of the Tudor Travel Show on a fortnightly basis. One of those episodes will be as per usual, COVID allowing, I hope to be out and about, seeing wonderful Tudor locations and exploring them on site with an expert or guide to help us along our way. And the TTG News Desk will also be continuing as per usual. In the second episode of the month, I will be doing a studio interview. So if you like, it's a Tudor Travel Show Extra in which I'll be able to bring on Tudor authors, Tudor curators or other experts who know and love their Tudor buildings and property and places and artefacts. So there's going to be loads of wonderful Tudor content to bring your way. And if you've got any thoughts about places or artefacts that you'd like to find out more about, then of course, you can always email me at sarah at the tudortravelguide.com. I love to hear from folk and I am more than happy to listen to your hearty recommendations. So in fact, we are going to kick off November with a Tudor Travel Show Extra. And as you probably know by now, our guest is the very, very special Professor Simon Thurley, who, as far as I'm concerned, my friends, is the Elvis of Tudor buildings. Yes, the king. What Simon does not know about Tudor buildings is probably not worth knowing. So, for those of you who aren't familiar with Simon's work, then let me introduce him to you. Simon started his career at the Museum of London, where he was a director. But more recently, he spent 13 years as the chief executive of English Heritage. Of course, English Heritage has an extensive collection of around 420 sites and monuments that they care for within the UK. He is currently a leading historian of English architecture, a senior research fellow at the Institute of Historical Research in London, and he is also the provost of Gresham College, where he is the professor of the built environment. Now, many of you may have seen Simon on various TV programmes, including Time Team, or you may have one of his many wonderful books, two of which you will hear discussed in the following interview. I, for one, am a very proud owner and have poured over many of them. And if you love your Tudor buildings, then really Simon's books are a must addition to your library. 
So without further ado, let's go straight over and join my discussion with Professor Thurley. So welcome, Simon, to the Tudor Travel Show. It's a total delight for me to have you here, as I think you know you are one of my favourite authors in the Tudor sphere. Now, what I would like to talk about first, I've obviously introduced you, but it would be great to be able to hear a little bit from you about the work that you do now. How would you describe that? Well, I, I spent my whole life really dealing with historic buildings and historic places and historic landscapes and gardens. And I've, I've had a very fortunate career and actually been involved with some of the most amazing buildings, including some of the most amazing Tudor buildings um, in the country. And um, one of my main buildings I'm dealing with at the moment, I'm afraid, isn't Tudor, it's the Palace of Westminster, where we're embarking on a, an enormous £4 billion restoration. Um, but there are, of course, some great Tudor stories for the Palace of Westminster too. We perhaps won't get into them today, but um, it is the, the site of one or two pretty amazing moments, including, of course, the trial of uh, Sir Thomas More. And there's a brass plate that I walk over every day when I go into the, um, the palace, um, uh, commemorating that uh, particular event. So I'm very involved in that and in, involved in a large number of other buildings too. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm deeply envious. <laughs> but I, I really would like to know what's kind of, uh, what drives you and how did you get into being so fascinated with buildings and Tudor buildings in particular? Well, funnily enough, I didn't start off with the Tudors. I started with the Romans. Um, and the Romans, they have something in common with the Tudors, certainly archaeologically, because really the Romans are the first uh, sort of civilization on our island where you can dig and as a relatively, relatively inexperienced amateur, you can find something satisfying. I mean, you have to be very experienced to identify Iron Age post holes, but to find a Tudor, uh, to find a sorry Roman basilica in your garden, which is what I did when I was seven years old, um, uh, you know, does kind of give you a bit of a, a passion for history, and it is something you can actually tangibly see because it's got masonry walls, and um, it may seem like a long stretch from the Romans to the Tudors, but by various circuitous routes, um, I did en end up actually at Hampton Court in my um, in my uh, very early 20s, um, which sort of put the, the, the seal on the Tudor enthusiasm, I suppose. Yes, I can, I can absolutely see why. Now, I've been following your work and your writing, and I own many of your books, Um for some time, but most recently I saw you on the Gresham College uh, website delivering a lecture. And I believe that you're in the middle of the moment of doing a sequence of lecture, I guess around powerhouses. And you mentioned, obviously the uh, there were two Tudor families that you were focusing on, the Boleyns and the Cecils. And we're gonna talk more about the Boleyns, one of my favorite topics today. But before we dive into that, I was just curious about why you picked those two families in particular, was there a particular question you were hoping to answer as you as you pull together the work to deliver those lectures? Well, yes, I, I essentially chose um, families who made their wealth and their um, their success in slightly different ways. And um, the Boleyns, are, uh, which I know you want to talk about, are uh, are extremely interesting because they became um, an enormously wealthy landowning family with a um, huge number of properties um, and a huge amount of land that they owned. Um, and of course, their most 
famous child became by default the greatest landowner in England of them all. So um, it's an aspect of a very, very well-trodden path that hadn't really been um, looked at before. Uh, and the Cecils likewise, I mean, they, they came to power um, in, a, in a different route um, through skill and administration. Um, and uh, amassed a, a, an equally impressive, um, arguably even more impressive, portfolio of buildings and, and, and estates at a period when the monarchy was not so interested in doing that. I mean, Henry VIII, uh, if he had seen any of, the, uh, any of the Cecil houses, would have licked his lips and probably, um, probably persuaded, him to, uh, <laughs> persuaded them to give them over to him. That's probably... Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, so for those people who maybe haven't seen those lectures, I will put links in the description associated with this podcast so that they can catch up because I believe they are still, the, the, the Blinn lecture is still online and the Cecil lecture is coming up in about 19 days time, at least from when we're recording this. So what would the date be for that, uh, Simon? The 4th of November at 6pm okay. is uh, are the Cecil's. But the Berlin lecture is online at any point. Just go to the Gresham um, College website and you can see the whole thing. Excellent. So that is highly recommended from me, I must say. So I was aware of most of the properties that you covered in the Berlin portfolio. Um, but what, one of the things that was really interesting was, was how you were talking about Heaver in relation to some of the perhaps larger Berlin properties, Rochford Hall and and Luton Who, for example. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the, everybody knows a lot about Heber, but maybe not so much about Rochford Hall or Luton Who. Can you tell us a little bit about those properties and particularly how they might have appeared during the 16th century when the Berlins owned them? Yes, I can. I mean, the, the, what, what essentially the Berlin family did was marry into land. And I mean, arguably, um, the whole story of the of the family dynasty is driven by women, because it's through the uh, female line that the Berlins came into a series of massive houses. These aren't small places; these are really big, double or some cases triple courtyard um, houses. So they're not as big as Hampton Court, uh, obviously, um, but they are very, very substantial um, residences. And um, Rochford Hall, um, which is in Essex. Um, still, big chunks of it still survive. Um, they're on a golf course. I was shown round by a very uh, charming uh, man who I got permission to, to visit. And you can begin to get a little bit of a flavour of the, the size of this, uh, of this house. Very, very close to the church. And the church has a private pew in it, which I think you know, may well have been a private pew that... Um, the Berlin family, um, including Anne, um, used. So you can, at, at Rochford Hall, get a little bit of a flavour of the this, this sort of size and splendour of the house and its setting, its landscape setting, because, of course, it wasn't surrounded by a golf course in the 16th century, but it was surrounded by, you know, beautiful mature trees and, in, in parkland, and you can get a sense of that. Luton Who? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, very, very frustrating. I mean, the Who, as it was known, was a big, another big house, uh, a lot of land attached to it. Um, but in the uh, in the 17th and 18th century, and then in the 19th century, succession of very big building projects literally scalped the landscape clean, and there's really nothing we can tell. 
which is very frustrating because it's quite clear that um, Thomas Boleyn, uh, uh, Anne's father, you know, spent a lot of time there. It was one of his principal um, residences. So a, a couple of things. After listening to your lecture, I was I, I knew something of Rochford Hall and the likes of Blickling, etc. But I didn't really know so much about Luton Hoo. So I went away to try and research. And uh, I'm glad you're confirming that there is there really is nothing. And there's no there doesn't seem to be any description of what the house or very little description, if any, of what the house actually looked like. Is that right? That is right. But it doesn't mean that uh, it isn't there. Um, I think that it is quite possible that um, more could be found out. And it's also possible that at, uh, at Rochford or Rochford Hall, um, it is perfectly possible that more could be found out there as well. And it might even be possible there to, to you know, partially reconstruct you know, what it was like in the Berlin period. Um, I doubt if you'll get that far with who, but I think it is possible to get further. I mean, I did look at quite a lot of primary documentation um, and looked at the, all the relevant wills and inquisitions post-mortem and everything. But I suspect with a really sustained campaign, you might get further than I got.
again, relating to that sort of try, I know there's blickling as well, and we're not really talking about blickling today, but related to the triad of properties we've already been talking about, Heaver, um, Luton Who, and, um, and Richford Hall. One of the things that I think I, I was left with the impression um, was that Heaver perhaps wasn't as used as much as a family home during the Berlin children's childhood. I mean, no doubt it was, but I'd always thought that, you know, that was the principal place in which the children go up. But am I right now in concluding actually that they would have moved sort of equally between those three, four properties or more? Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, he was very, very small, and I was managed. I uh, was able to really, in great detail, reconstruct the you know the plan of the house in in the time that it was owned by the Berlins, and it is a very, very small house. Um, and uh, he, uh, Thomas Berlin was a very, very, very great man, and there's no way that um, his whole family, and you know, it's, there were a lot of children, um, plus all their servants and attendants and everybody could have stayed there for uh, any serious length of time, and. Um, I think the case is that it was it was very good hunting in the high wheel. It was a very much a sort of hunting place. Um, but it was also, and this is absolutely crucial to understanding it, it was close to Greenwich. And of course, Greenwich was in that early part of the, the, the Henry VIII's reign when the, the uh, sort of fatal attraction between the two began. Um, Greenwich was the headquarters of the monarchy and it's a, a very, you know, straightforward ride from Greenwich to Hever. And so uh, there were a lot of reasons why Hever was geographically very convenient. Um, and you know, at that period when Anne really kind of had to sort of keep out of the way uh, because it was all very difficult, mm -hmm. it, it was the ideal place because there were hardly any servants there. It was a very, very private location surrounded by a double moat in the middle of a hunting park. I mean, if you didn't want people to bother you, it's the obvious place to go. That's really interesting. That just sheds a whole new light. And I guess the closeness with Greenwich would explain where be, maybe why she retreated there when she fell ill with the sweat, because I think that was where they were when they first received news. So that all makes a lot of sense now. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm also always curious about the Berlin properties in London. And, and I know that Anne occupied certain, I think, properties, I think Durham House at one stage when she was in her ascendancy. But do we know of any specific London properties? Like, for example, we know of Austin Friars for Thomas Cromwell. Do, do we know of any Berlin properties in London or has that been lost? Uh, no, we do know. Uh, we do know where they, um, where their London houses were in the city of London. We know that. And in fact, um, one of the consequences of me giving my Gresham lecture on the Berlins is that actually someone has got in touch with me who is um, making a study of uh, various aspects of this. And um, she has managed to identify um, uh, a, a Berlin property in the city that I hadn't found. So um, there were a number of houses in the city, but of course, by that stage, these big aristocrats were very much um, moving west. They were moving out of the city. They were colonizing the Strand. And you know, Thomas and Elizabeth had lodgings in every single royal palace. I mean, quite extensive lodgings in some of them. So uh, they were pretty well provided for in, in London. So... Are we allowed to know where the uh, London properties were, were or they, is that top secret at the moment while research is ongoing? Well, I don't think it'd be right for me to, um, to pass on what the, this other researcher has, has found, but uh, my, my um, lecture 
tells tells you everything you you need to know and everything that we do know. Uh, well, I knew up until very recently about uh, where the the London houses were, and there were a number of them. I mean, there were, you know, at one point there was a house um, near Lincoln's Inn, um, the, and another time there was a house in Old Jewry. I mean, right in the centre of the the, the, the city. Um, and these were probably pretty substantial masonry um, houses, but no house in the city was very big. No. <laughs> um, because it was very constrained space. And, you know, they they would have spent most of their time at court. And the moment, that, that, as it were, the end of term came, they'd be out of London and going to the larger houses, um, to, to, to Rochford or Who in particular, and then little trips to Hever. Um, to entertain themselves. So one of my next questions was, are you done with researching the Berlin properties? But I think you've just answered that question by saying, well, possibly not. <laughs> there may be something for us to look forward to about what we know of the Berlins in London. Well, I think, um, uh, you know, another scholar is working on that and I think that's really exciting. And I think I'm sure they will turn up more. I mean, it, it takes a lot of patience to, to comb through the, the, the the density of property records for London is very great and, you know, it's a time-consuming process. I think it would be, you'd, you'd faster be able to say you'd closed off all avenues for who than you would be able to say you closed off all av avenues in London because just the a huge amount of information that survives. Right, right, right. Okay, so, but but I, I kind of feel that there is potentially still more to come. We don't, we certainly don't know everything as it stands. No, we don't. We don't. We never will know everything, but there will come to a point when we know everything that we can know, mm. but we're not there yet. Yeah, great. Looking forward to it. Um, so I wanted to move on a little bit from the Berlins. And as I say, I do commend people to listen to your lecture if they want some of the more detail, because it was absolutely fascinating. And I want to talk about your book, Houses of Power, which was your, is your latest book. That's right, isn't it? It is, yeah. And an absolutely amazing book. It's so packed with illuminating detail. I keep going back to it and um, forgetting what I've read and going, oh my goodness, all over again. Um, so maybe you can tell us about what stimulated you to write it and maybe a little bit about the book. And if somebody was buying it, you know, what could they expect? Well, um, I, you know um, the sort of thing I write, Sarah, but I mean, I, I, I'm a historian, but I, I really, uh, someone who writes history through buildings and through places. And this book, um, it is about buildings, but it is also about places. It's about um, urban space and it's about countryside as, as well as um, individual buildings. And it's really trying to help us understand the, the Tudor court through the places in which it um, spent its time. And you know, obviously there's, a, there's quite a lot of Whitehall and there's quite a lot of the, the Thames Valley houses where they were in the, the, the winter time, Greenwich and Richmond, et cetera. But there's also quite a lot about what uh, what happened elsewhere and Henry's progresses, how uh, and Elizabeth's of course as well, um, and how the progresses worked and where they went and the houses they stayed in and what happened if you were unfortunate enough to be an aristocrat and Queen Elizabeth turned up on your doorstep. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you wrote the book, were you sort of collating all the knowledge you felt you'd already acquired over the years, or were you trying to research something? else and, and and also my second question if I may is did you therefore learn anything in in writing houses of power 
Well, I mean, Houses of Power really came out I mean, uh, of, of actually my very first book, which was published in 1993, which is called The Royal Palaces of Tudor England, which was essentially my PhD. But that book had a number of flaws. And the, the two principal flaws were that I hadn't really properly understood Henry VII in 1993. And secondly, the book didn't go on to um, Edward, Mary and um, Elizabeth. And both of those um, shortcomings made quite a big difference to the, the sort of the picture I was able to paint, and particularly not really fully understanding Henry VII. And so when I started writing Houses of Power, um, I kind of thought I knew everything about the subject. And then I found to my complete horror that I really didn't. And I had really got it quite muddled up and misunderstood. And so there's certainly the material in Henry VII is very original. I don't think anybody has really understood the interrelationship between Henry and the places in which Henry VII and the places in which he lived. I think that is a very new insight. And also um, at the end of the book, the Elizabethan stuff and properly understanding, you know, Queen Elizabeth I's attitudes to architecture and to the places in which she lived and how she used them. Everyone says she wasn't interested in building, but actually she built some pretty important things. So I, I think the book, um, I think it, it did surprise me how much, you know, having worked on this area for more than 30 years, how much I really didn't know and didn't understand. And I, I kind of felt that it was very important to try and get it all together in one place um, as a coherent narrative. Well, hearing you say that means makes me feel that there's hope for all of us amateur historians who pod and poke around and get things terribly wrong. And maybe there's always something for everybody to learn. But I was really fascinated by what you were saying there about Henry VII. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about what you learned about him and the places he occupied and what that reveals about him? Well, I think the, most, the single most important thing that one has to remember is that it was very, it's been very, very unusual in English history for a monarch to come to the throne who had really never stepped inside a royal palace before he became king. I mean, on one occasion for 
a matter of hours, Henry VII went, came to London and went into Westminster Palace and saw um, King Henry VI. Um, and really, that was it. And so when he became king, every single royal house he went into was completely new to him. You know, he, he'd, been, he'd been in Westminster as a teenager 20 years before. Um, he, became, he came to the throne. He'd never been to Windsor. Um, he'd never been to Woodstock. He'd never been to any of the big palaces. And so there's a real sense of uh, a reinvention that, um, that takes place. Um, and that reinvention can only really take place when he feels a bit more secure on the throne. So the first part of his reign, you know, every which way he's looking over his shoulder, the rebellions. I mean, you know, he could have lost the throne at any moment, really. But the moment he feels sort of secure in the throne, after about 1500, uh, you do see him taking a completely different course and he's able to reinvent things in his own image. And there is a sense that Henry VII, you know, starts afresh. And one of the reasons he can do that is that he's not encumbered with a huge sort of back history of tradition because mm. he didn't know what it was like being at court before he got there. And so do you think that part of the reinvention was um, expressed, I hope I'm right in this, in his uh, development or rebuilding of what was the Palace of Placentia, or, or I think it was Duke Humphrey's old palace, which became Greenwich? Was that his first major building project? And, and, and can that building at Greenwich tell us anything more about his uh, aspirations, tastes, etc.? Yeah, I think I think it definitely can. I mean, Placentia or Greenwich, um, depending on what you want to call it, it's called different things at different times, um, is a very particular type of palace because um, it is one that is has a physical division between uh, a, a sort of a, a pleasure area, which was, you know, actually really quite private, even by sort of modern standards, reasonably private. And a sort of more public, um, a, a more public area. And I think what's very um, important about Henry the Seventh is that he he does he's involved in a break in tradition, whereby he really more or less insists on having a private environment that actually, when it boils down to it, is safe. So it's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. he discovers a plot in which his Lord Chamberlain and his Lord Steward are implicated. I mean, it's pretty horrific. Um, and he uh, is determined to create an environments within the, the royal houses where he could be, uh, he could be safe and secure. And that leads to a whole new sort of part of these places, which are private residences, really. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Now, one of the things I, I completely resonate with you on is, is I love um, I love seeing history through places. And for me, what I found out is when I understand more about a building, and this is what I've come to understand myself, when I come understand more about Tudor buildings, I understand more about the history and the events and the people that live there. And I just wondered if you agree with that sentiment. And, and if so, can you help me explain why that's the case? Well, uh, obviously, I agree with uh, I agree with that. I mean, you know, I mean, the, imagine you're thinking about the the Reformation, um, and you um, live in Bolivia, 
and you're reading textbooks and you can think, yeah, okay, I can see there was a, you know, big moment that happened there in English history, if anyone in Bolivia is remotely interested in English history. Um, but then imagine that you get in an aeroplane and you go to Fountains Abbey and you see this whacking great building, huge great building of stone. I mean, really just absolutely gigantic. And you begin to understand the investment in bricks and mortar and money that went into, uh, into the whole of monasticism. And then you begin to understand that um, there were reasons why the monastic life was not fulfilling its original purposes and there was um, corruption and abuses and that there was a process of reform and then you have a greedy king who wants to uh, liquidize those assets for himself. That visit to Fountains Abbey will tell you an awful lot more than reading four or five books because you're there and you can see the physical impact of it. So. And you will replicate that in the Tudor world, you know, go and visit the Tower of London. There are all sorts of places you can go to, obviously Hampton Court, uh, where suddenly you begin to get it. And I think that's it. You, you know, you step into a, a place where you can touch the very brick that the people you are reading about and studying, um, the same brick they touched. Yeah. Um, and obviously, obviously, you know, things have changed, but um, without going to a place, it's very hard to understand. I mean, I, when, I've, when I write about places, I never, ever write about them unless I have been there and really had, you know, really properly studied the place as much as you can in, in the physical, uh, in its physical sense. And so, you know, for writing the uh, um, Houses of Power, I went back I'd visited them all before, but I went back to dozens and dozens of places to look at them again, so to make sure I was really understanding their landscape setting, you know, how the parks related to the houses, where the rivers were, where the roads were, how you'd get to it. All of that, you kind of need to get your get your teeth into. And it really does, I, I, for me, it just, it, I mean, this is a bit of a cliched phrase, but it absolutely does bring it to life when you can understand how people would have, as you say, arrived at a place and how they would have used the room. So, yeah, I often say if anybody follows this show, they'll know that my kind of expression that I use with my uh, co-author of my In the Footsteps books is it's only time and not space which separates you. And I think that's exactly what you're referring to there about being able to touch the bricks. And uh, it's very special. Yeah, very neat. So we're coming towards the end of our chat, but I have a, maybe a couple of whimsical questions for you now, if I may, Simon. First of all, you know, of all the places that you have studied over the years, is there any particular house or chamber from the Tudor period that you would love to see recreated? And why is that? Um, well, you mean a lost, uh, a chamber that is lost? Yeah, a place, a building or a chamber that is lost that yeah. you to see in its glory. Well, I, I, if there's one building that I've really sort of researched more than sort of, well, definitely more than anyone else, but sort of really thought about more than anyone else and, and really gone back and back and back and back to it is Whitehall. And Whitehall is really such an immensely, immensely important and influential building. And, you know, still, despite my efforts over, you know, 30 years, really fundamentally misunderstood and people call it a sort of, you know, a jumble of buildings, a sort of, pile of old you know um disorganized you know, structures hurled together I mean, it just simply isn't the case i mean whitehall um is really s such an important place and it's a uh, uh, 
it's fundamentally important to understand uh, how it worked because it explains how politics worked and how the government worked. And if I could have my um, my my day in the past, I would unquestionably want to spend it in Whitehall. Um, and incidentally, I was reading um, uh, 17th century uh, diarist Robert Hooke the other day, and it's fascinating. Apparently, um, Christopher Wren plays that very same game. Does he? <laughs> yeah. How, how is that expressed in the diary? 1670s, he sits down and plays exactly the same game, um, you know, saying, where would you go back to if you were allowed to go back in history? So it's an old game, but it's a really nice one, isn't it? It is, because for me, it would be the Royal Apartments at the Tower. Purely ah, because yes. I'd love to get close to those places that knew, because Anne Boleyn is my historical heroine, as many listeners will know. Um, and I know from the glint in your eye when you were talking about her in your Gresham lecture that you're rather fond of her as well, I think. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm slightly in love with her, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> well, that makes two of us. But no, to be close to the place where she saw her moment of triumph and her moment of tragedy, I think, would be incredible. Anyway, enough about me and my whims. But um Yes, yeah, so I, I suppose the next whimsical question is, if there's one question to do with Tudor houses you would love to have an answer to, but you don't yet have, what would that be? <laughs> well, I mean, there are uh, there are a number of very important houses which um, we don't really know as much as we want to about. And I suppose there are some quite specific things I'd like to know. Um, mm. I don't know. I, I suppose, yes, I think I would love to do a bit more digging at Greenwich, actually. Um, if someone said, OK, you can do a really massive archaeological dig at Greenwich um, I, and the lawns are all there. They're just ripe and waiting for my spade, really. I think that that would be a question. I mean, the, the inner court there, which Elizabeth I remodels, I'd really love to see if I could find some big chunks of stucco or um, terracotta to understand exactly how classicizing that courtyard was. I think it was rather an amazing courtyard. And because it was lost to history, people think that Elizabeth I didn't do anything. Uh-huh. But I think that it, there was something there that was pretty amazing and we don't really know about it. I'd love to find out. Oh, well, if you ever get that archaeological project, call me. <laughs> I'll turn yeah. up with my spade as well. Uh, Anyway, my final question, I suppose, is is just about up and coming projects. Um, I've mentioned, of course, the Gresham Lecture coming up on the Cecils that everybody should um, make a beeline for. Um, any other projects you can tell us about? Um, well, actually, I'm in the, in the process of uh, completing a, a sequel to my um, my last book, uh, my um, Houses of Power, which I disappoint you to uh, hear that is really about the 17th century and about the Stuarts. So I can't really mention that um, in this environment. But um, I do, I actually have a project about um, about sort of, uh, Tudor merchants' houses in the city, which will in due course see the light of day as a book. Um, and I think that uh, I think that will be interesting and revealing for people because only one of them survives, really, which is Crosby Hall, ah, yes. which is now in Chelsea. Mm. Um, and that will be the centrepiece of the book. And I think, we, you know, Thomas More owned it, et cetera. So I think uh, that project will be of interest to you in due course when it's finished. Marvellous. I can't wait. As ever, I shall keep an eagle eye out for whatever comes 
from you and whatever you're writing or researching um i'm sure it's not only me but lots and lots of people out there from the number of people who were on your gresham lecture i know there'll be a lot of people out there looking forward to whatever comes next but in the meantime i just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out and talking to us today about these wonderful houses of power that's all right really nice to talk to you so that's a big thank you from me to Professor Simon Thurley for taking the time out of a very busy schedule to share his knowledge and passion for Tudor buildings with us today. It sounds like we have some treats in store in the future and I for one can't wait to learn more about those Berlin properties in London. So links to Simon's books, The Royal Palaces of Tudor England and Houses of Power will be included in the text associated with this podcast as ever, as will the link to his forthcoming Gresham lecture on the Cecils, which is taking place on Wednesday the 4th of November. That will also be included in the text associated with this podcast. And I know Simon was keen for me to share with you another project of his. He has created a website called royalpalaces.com. And this is an encyclopedia of British royal palaces and royal builders. As Simon says on the website, there were about 150 places in Britain that were known royal houses at one time or another. And the information on this website puts a spotlight on those palaces and continually updates the information as new evidence comes to light. So that's well worth checking out. Now, before we finish talking about this topic, I also just wanted to add that Simon has very kindly donated a signed copy of Houses of Power to my patron programme for this month. So if you are a patron and you are contributing more than $5 a month, thank you, thank you, thank you, then you are eligible to uh, enter the giveaway each month for my patron prize. Now, I have a signed copy of Houses of Power and it is a treasured item on my bookshelves. So if you want to become a patron and are not yet involved in the programme, do make sure you check out my homepage on Podbean and look for the Become a Patron button in the top right-hand corner. You can see all the different levels of sponsorship that are available. Well, that's all for this month's Tudor Travel Show Extra. But we'll be back, of course, later this month in a couple of weeks' time where I will be posting the advertised show. And this is an interview with Natasha Awostein about Tudor male jewellery. And who knew there is so much to know about it? Fascinating stuff. And I'll also be joined by a very special guest who will be helping me announce my autumn virtual summit. There's a very special anniversary coming up at the end of November. Perhaps you know already what I'm talking about. But if you don't, do make sure you tune into the next episode to find out all about the summit and how you can sign up for free. So until next time, my friends, from Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide, I just want to wish you one last thing, and that is, of course, happy time travelling. <laughs>